by working as I do in this industry, you start to see the world as not a series of constrained conditions that you must acclimate yourself to and submit yourself to, but you see the world as an environment that is under your control. Hello and welcome to the Hacker Next Door podcast, where we explore the origin stories, exploits, and everyday lives of real-world hackers. I'm your host, Jeremy N. Smith, and this series is my chance to challenge stereotypes and examine the human side of this extraordinary activity and profession, who hackers really are, and how hacking really works. Imagine your job was breaking into buildings, telling people how you did it, and then spreading the word so others could do the same. That's true for my guest today, legendary lockpicker Deviant Olaf. Deviant's the author of two amazing lockpicking books. He's the star of countless viral YouTube lockpicking videos, and he's trained FBI agents and U.S. Naval Academy officers. Plus, he's a hugely popular public speaker, attending as many as 40 to 50 events a year. When I was researching and writing my book, Breaking and Entering, I was lucky enough to have Deviant as an ever-surprising and enlightening resource and guide. I hope you enjoy and learn from our conversation as much as I did. Welcome to the podcast, Deviant. Thank you for having me. It's good to talk to you again. First things first, I know Deviant is your hacker handle, not your real name. Can you tell me the story of how, how you chose Deviant? Sure. Well, I have this recollection of my parents' generation sort of almost spitting that term. Uh, not they themselves, because they, they were always very kind and understanding people, but it was definitely not a word that you would sort of throw around at someone you liked. And that always puzzled me. I always thought, well, what the heck is wrong with, with deviating from the norm? Why is it so wrong to not conform? What, what is so horrible about being different that some people would treat it like an insult? Do you really introduce yourself as deviant to people and how do, how do they react? 100%. I mean, they, they react way less strangely than they would if I had used a name that they'd never heard of before. Most people who are meeting me know me from online or know me from a book or know me from videos and presentations or professional training courses or articles. Uh, in all such instances, I mean, I am deviant. All right. You've reclaimed it. I love it. You've mentioned all these people meeting you and, you know, hackers are often stereotyped as antisocial, but you are not only the most social hacker I know, you're one of the most social people I know. You seem to go everywhere. You seem to know everyone. And most of this seems to spin out, at least originally, of your role running Lockpick Village at various hacker conventions. And, you know, I think for a lot of people that raises several questions, the first of which is just, what is a hacker convention? You know, where are they? Who comes? What do you all do there? How is everyone not just immediately arrested? Right. So decades ago, there was a vibrant sort of hacker culture, and it existed in small pockets. Um, if you go way back, almost pre-computers, right, you have the MIT hacker community. If you go to the earliest days of computer communication, where you have BBSs, bulletin boards online, before the wider internet, people were dialing up into different boards, and they had sort of a, a, a small culture of community. But much of these groups were either located in independent cities, like the, the Massachusetts kids, right? Or they were people who knew each other remotely, but interacted ex almost exclusively remotely. And a few people said, hey, you know, this is great that we all know one another, but what if we were all to just show up for one weekend in the same place? Let's find a hotel. 
Let's all get together. I'd like to meet you in person. And when you say, how is everyone not just immediately arrested? Uh, it was not without incident, especially in the earliest <laughs> days, right? Uh, there were many hotels that shenanigans were extreme. Uh, events were either in not invited back or canceled mid-event because a lot of people at the time, if, if you give a bunch of young, somewhat outsider, somewhat unrestrained people who are not under the watchful eye of their local communities or their parents, you just suddenly thrust them into an environment where they can explore new topics, they can explore uh, interacting with one another in, in a way that maybe they've felt isolated before. Some people are going to cut a little loose. Some people are going to get way too uh, interested in putting a stack of all the hotel payphones like in an elevator, <laughs> something like that. So what is Lockpick Village? So at the very first ShmooCon 15 years ago, I presented, and I presented about lockpicking because it's something that I was passionate about, I enjoyed. And after I got off stage, like, it's not like we had a place to go and mingle other than, hey, here's, let's take over the hotel bar, try to find a few booths up there if you want to do what I'm doing. So I didn't want to do that. I said, look, I'm going to find a table. And I just grabbed a table, threw it in, in the hallway, literally right outside the talk room. Uh, and I spread out all the things that I had on stage with me. I just spread them on the table. And the the notion of, well, watching someone do something is cool, but trying it yourself is way cooler. Mm. And this kind of impromptu session was something that kept continuing. The idea is learn, touch, do. It's a three-step process. So there's like these tables. Uh, they're full of different kinds of locks, and they're full of lock picks. And there's sort of a bunch of people sitting down, trying them out. And meanwhile, there's one or two teachers of sorts that are there often to kind of stand over their shoulder, give them tips and stuff like that. Is that the sort of general scene and the experience? I mean, yeah. It's back in the day, it was one or two. Nowadays, I think the Lockpick Village alone has a staff of something like almost 20 people who rotate in and out. So at any given time, there's a dozen or more uh, just experts who love a topic and who want to teach others. So at the biggest convention, DEF CON in Las Vegas, where 20,000 plus people attend every August, you might mm -hmm. have hundreds, even thousand people going through the Lockpick Village. Is that right? Easily. Easily. We, in addition to being one of the oldest of all the villages, we remain one of the most popular because instantly people understand what that is. Even if they're just, they've never seen DEF CON before, they've never done it, they're just flipping through a program and they might see Biohacking Village or Packet Hacking Village, the Crypto and Privacy Village. These are all places that exist. But if you're not sure, you know, say like car hacking, I don't, what is there, a car here? I don't know about if I understand about that. But lockpicking, I get that. I'll, I'll go check that out. And so we get a lot of first timers, a lot of, I don't know what I'm doing here, but this sounded cool. Can I, can I learn? And when they realize, yes, you, not only can you learn, you can then touch things with your hands and then do the thing right here, live and in person. And maybe uh, 10, 10 yeah. 15 minutes in, they're, they're popping their first lock? Absolutely. So obviously you're literally opening doors. And mm -hmm. for you, that extends to like safes, elevators. I remember watching one of your elevator hacking talks. And realizing, you know, geez, he can get into the basement and tap into the phone lines or the data center of an enterprise, or he can go right into the penthouse or executive suite and walk off with someone's diary or car keys or tax returns or a laptop. You, you actually have a day job doing that. You're hired as a security consultant 
trying to test and bypass all kinds of locks. And I just I just want to know, like, when you're there in person at someone's house or place of business and you're trying to break in, what does it feel like? It never really gets old, I will say. That's the first thing. For as many times as I've gotten in a building and not gotten caught, which is all the times, each time when you sort of cross that threshold, when you're, when you're sort of, all right, this is the moment of commitment. I'm not just a person standing here kind of next to a building. I'm going to start attacking this lock or I'm going to, you know, take this card reader off the wall and install a piece of, you know, interception circuitry on the inside of wires. The moment you cross the line into someone who might get accosted by a guard or say, hey, what are you doing over there? Do you belong here? It still gets your heart pumping. I bet. And when yeah. you're walk, are you walking off with something, or are you kind of taking pictures? How do you prove? You it know, depends on what the client body. wants. Sometimes we are leaving our business cards, or just sort of, it's almost like counting coup, right? Sometimes you're leaving just a an evidence that you were inside. Mm. Other clients want you to take uh, photographic or even video evidence because that you know makes for very nice deliverable reports, frankly. And ultimately, some clients will say, "Yeah, go ahead and." Try to steal something from in the building. Yeah. If you can get the Maserati out of the garage, go for it. So I actually know uh, friends of ours who are on a team. And, yeah, I mean, one of their targets was a high-end car dealership. And that was one of the things they were told to do, if you can actually get a car off lot. Uh, and then they did. They did. They did. They turned it around and pulled it back in. But it was parked the other direction, obviously, right at the, in the middle of the showroom. It had been moved, turned around. And they had a great time with it. Do you start seeing everything as a door? Absolutely. If not as a door, you start seeing everything as an avenue of access, even if it's not a a passage through which I or, or a vehicle or some other resource could move. You walk around a building and you start to see things as, well, that I could leverage that. Okay, well, look at this. All right, so we've got plumbing over here. You've got power over here. That's probably not secure. If I could knock the power out even briefly, I bet the mag locks would go off here. Or you start seeing, okay, so this is the guards come around. Clearly, these are guard check-in locations here, 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 and here. And you say, all right, these little dots are on the, you know, okay, these are I buttons. So they must be using these for guards to do a guard tour and validate they're doing their work. Well, let's walk around the building. Okay, so there's 10 of them. So even on the, the most fast-paced guard has to hit each of these spots. So each guard is never going to be around here more than half an hour each time. So all right, we, that, that tells us something. We can use this. We can leverage this. I got a taste of this. I was so fortunate. I got to hang out with you at DEF CON, which that year, that first year we were together was at Caesars Palace, I believe. Yeah, in Vegas. yeah. And first of all, wherever we went, people extended handshakes, high fives. They were like, hey, Deviant. I just felt like I was you know, traveling with Taylor Swift for a minute. <laughs> uh, but second of all, if there was a line to an event or a party that was really crowded, or even if you just wanted to be left alone for a minute and kind of take a breather, you immediately identified secret passages or escape routes or what to me were secret passages or escape routes. I remember following you for 30 seconds and realizing, wait a second, we just left the casino. We're going through the kitchen up the staff elevator, out to a balcony, over and into a party with an open bar. And, you know, I sort of was always like 10 seconds behind. I was like, wait, did that just happen? Did that just happen? Did that just happen? <laughs> and it all seemed totally ex instinctual. You were just going like Mercury traveling, you know, on the ground when you drop a thermometer. Does seeing everything uh, as a door in that way or as a route come naturally to you or did it take time? I would say probably both, right? I mean, it it didn't happen instantly, but it wasn't a conscious effort either. It did just kind of happen naturally. 
by working as I do in this industry, you start to see the world as not a series of constrained conditions that you must acclimate yourself to and submit yourself to, but you see the world as an environment that is under your control. And you say, well, if, if I don't like what I'm encountering here, if, if something's not working for me, I will just immediately use whatever I can on hand to change my environment. I will remake the situation to be better for me and those around me. It's wow. sort of the, the, the joke of like if you're in a large meeting room and the tables are all on one side of the room and the chairs are all stacked on the other side of the room and they're both against the wall. And you're, you're in there with a group of people and they say, okay, well, you know, the meeting will commence in a little bit. Sorry, the organizer's running behind. Some people are the kind of individual who will go outside and be like, well, f forget this. I'm, if this guy's late, I'm not waiting around for them. I'm going to go get a coffee or a drink or something. Other people will just kind of mill around aimlessly, and they'll kind of, maybe they'll introduce themselves to one another. Maybe they're shy, but they'll just kind of, all right, well, I'm in this room. It's got a big open space. And yet others, and I think I'm in this group. My wife's definitely in this group. That's kind of why we get along. We'll be like, well, screw this. I'm not standing around in the room like a, like a doofus. Let's go pull some of these stacks of chairs apart and actually put them next to a table. You know, you're describing it as making the world better, and in that case, it certainly is. But I think most people think of hackers as not making the world better, and maybe that's a misconception. But I have to say, a lot of this really freaked me out, especially during that first visit to DEF CON. There was your lockpicking village. There was a car hacking room where people were taking apart a Tesla. There was mm -hmm. an Internet of Things room uh, for hacking smart fridges and smart dolls and that kind of stuff. There's even a so-called social engineering room where you know hackers competed against each other live in front of an enthusiastic audience to see who could trick randomly dialed Verizon store employees into giving up the most information on their store and customers. And you know it just seemed reckless to get people together to talk about and practice breaking into stuff. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it just took a while to kind of acclimate. Uh, and I think it does feel reckless and it does seem scary. And I, I kind of ended up reading this quote actually from a talk you had given at DEF CON that helped change my perspective. Oh, and um, I hope you can elaborate on it. But here was the, here was the quote. Quote, security is achieved through openness. Take things apart and play with them. Exposing bad security is what protects us all. That so, is right. can you kind of expand on that on that principle to s sort of make the case for why it's okay to get together and try to break into stuff, and we should be reassured rather than scared by it if if we can be? Yeah. Well, this this kind of harkens all the way back to a 19th century author and famous uh, engineer and and locksmith and safecracker or screwsman as they would be known back then uh ac hobbs uh i loved I'm, I'm pretty sure i was just sort of cribbing and updating into the modern vernacular this idea that that they expressed uh this was back in a time when books about especially security topics like locks and locksmithing were this very much burn after reading sort of material and there's even i, f I forget which text it is that has essentially that written in it where it's in the in the opening pages, it says, once you've mastered this art, it is really best to destroy this book, uh, lest it fall into the wrong hands. And maybe a publisher just wanted to increase sales. I'm not sure. I love it. But Hobbes didn't say that. Hobbes uh, specifically even said, I want to get the quote right. He said something to the effect of, rogues already knew about lockpicking long before locksmiths were talking about it or publishing books like this. 
And, you know, he says if a lock, if you have a lock or any device that is not uh, so strong as you think it is, if it is not as invaluable as others believe it to be, he said, surely it is in the interest of the general public to know this. You know, the honest person needs to know this because they don't have an avenue to learn this usually. The dishonest people who come by this knowledge are likely are they're the ones who are likely to apply this knowledge in a negative way. Rogues will be will be good at their roguery, which is a marvelous, <laughs> a marvelous noun that we all should really be using more often. But he said, you know, the spread of knowledge is necessary to level the playing field, to give fair play to the honest men and women, uh, to the honest citizens who might suffer through ignorance. And that's definitely what I felt. If, if somebody says this product uh, is the best lock you can ever imagine, it's, it's definitely going to keep you safe and sound, you really want to use it. Uh, okay, my instinct in any sort of situation like that, okay, why? Like, who said it? And the person speaking is, well, I said it. Look at me. I've got a, right. and a it's white like, lab yeah. coat and infomercial. I mean, it's even, you know, you get a security disclaimer from a software company and it says, your security and privacy, you know, really matter to us. And it's like, well, those are easy to say, but is, yeah. is it really Proof true? It. Yeah. Right. So the idea of don't take things at face value, actually ask to be able to see under the hood. And if someone won't let you see under the hood, that's the something's something's wrong there what what do they what do they not want you to see why do they not want you to take it apart and see it for yourself and am i right in thinking there's also in some parts of the hacker community and this is one reason it's important to have a community that also meets in person there's a code of ethics and you know i'm thinking specifically you're a member of the board of directors of the u.s division of tool T-O-O-O-L, the Open Organization of Lockpickers, which is a great name. It's awesome that that organization exists. It just made me smile when I first heard it and learned of it. And you guys do great work. And general hacker conventions aside, Tool organizes regular lockpicker meetups in about 30 U.S. cities. Mm -hmm. What are some of the ethical rules that you guys kind of teach and sort of insist on for members? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good point to make. And it, it really – it was kind of the Wild West in the earliest days of the hacker cons, the days of, you know, uh, as I said, like the, the pay phones and satellite dishes removed from their natural environments and placed elsewhere around a hotel, right? Uh, those – you know, that's, that's – fun. Oh, look at me, her. I'm rocking down the hall with a pay phone. But, I mean, that doesn't really achieve anything. That's not really a hack, right? That's just, that's just disruptive and kind of vandalism. So those of us who wanted to see the community continue to flourish had to, with, an, with a mind on fun, right? You never want to just ruin someone's good time, but you want to elevate their, their thinking. You want to say, look, what, what if instead of vandalizing all the payphones, we made all the payphones ring at the same time in this whole casino at noon, and if anyone picks up, it's all Rick Astley playing. Like, to me, that's funnier. It's technically more prowess involved with a mass yes. dial – and what if you didn't do it by paying, you know, actual money for a, a robocalling service? What if we found a, a, you know, PBX, a phone switch, and we were able to just do it for free because the phone switch wasn't actually preventing anyone from – like you can actually do it from your hotel room if you just call this extension. And we found this extension by looking in a staff manual that somebody had left laying on a table. So that to me is more, is more the mindset of nowadays not losing the fun – but saying, hey, what if, we, what if we didn't go to jail? What if no one literally got arrested at the end of DEF CON and we were invited back to the same hotel? That would be amazing. That, that would be a hack. 
a high bar or a low bar. I'm not sure. So yeah. So with so lockpicking, yeah, what are, what yeah are the, the, the lockpick village, we were pretty instantly mindful from the start of the optics on this. And the Dutch community, we we owe a lot of thanks to them for taking a really strong stand from the beginning among their their uh, interaction and meetups with others, where they said, look. Anybody can easily make the dumb joke of like, her, 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 Thief Academy, what are you doing over there? So they said it's, you know, we have to be extra emphasis must be placed on being ethical and safe. And no, this has nothing to do with criminal activity. So taking a cue from them, we adopted what are known as the two golden rules of lockpicking that all uh, lock enthusiasts tend to follow and encourage others to follow, which is, don't pick a lock you don't own, first of all, unless you have permission, right? So if somebody comes to our lockpick village and they see a bunch of locks on the table, well, they don't own those locks, right? But we own those locks, and we say, yes, you have permission to pick these. And if you're, if you're in your house, well, you might own the locks on that door. You don't own the locks in your neighbor's door unless your neighbor says, hey, come pick my lock. That does, when we get to houses and apartments, though, lead to the second golden rule, which is it's probably not a good idea to pick locks that are currently in use for some security purpose. If a lock is in use, like if it's installed in a door, it's got a job to do. And you could possibly cause it to malfunction if you're picking it. Probably not irreparably, but it's still not smart, right? So only hack locks that you own or have explicit permission and be smart, don't hack them when they're they're in use unless, you know, you're on a job. Yeah. Which makes sense. Yeah. It's interesting to grow up in a community that's kind of growing up with you. At mm-hmm. this point, you must have known people who've met, coupled up, had kids, you know, oh, and yeah. all that within, you know, this kind of convention world or, or online world. And at the other end of the spectrum, I mean, have you lost friends or ever been to a hacker's funeral? I'm just mm-hmm. kind of thinking about major life events. And of course, that's that's maybe the biggest yeah, uh, both of those are very, very real. The uh, new new lives coming in and new kiddos showing up is just kind of wild to look around and see all these people that, you know, I, I met them when they were in their teens and 20s, and now they're settling down and having kids of their own. I'm like, oh, my God. And also uh, people that have, that have aged out and we've lost them or lost them too soon. We have experienced definitely both sides of that as a community. Is there something distinctive about that kind of gathering for hackers to remember a hacker? Did all the payphones go off uh, in uh, the service or something like that, or is it? I is think that's. Just that, like, I'd like to have that happen when I pass away. Yeah. So, or is it just uh, the same kind of somber uh, memorializing that you know we expect from anyone else? I think it's what we what we expect from most everyone else. People. Yeah. People all have the right to grieve in the way that makes them happy. Some people do so in a very traditional sense. I've known other people where there was a hacker's funeral that literally put all their stuff on a small floating barge out to sea and fired a lit arrow at it. As silly uh, Hollywood as that might be, that's a little over the top, but that was a hacker funeral that I'm aware of, at least in one instance. I think it's pretty badass. Say someone listening to this wants to explore lockpicking or check out a hacker convention. What's the best way to begin? Start small and start local. Uh, definitely. I mean, DEF CON's great. I'm not steering anyone away from DEF CON, uh, and everyone should check it out. You won't be experiencing what DEF CON was when all of us 
were coming up. That DEFCON doesn't exist anymore. DEFCON used to be the place that you went employer be damned, right? Like, you don't. if my boss finds out I'm here, I might get in trouble, but uh, screw that. I, I want to go to DEFCON. And now DEFCON is a place where you go to get a new boss, to get a new job, to advance in your career. To network. Yeah, and uh, that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that it's good one way or the other, but it's humongous. And the idea of of what a small hacker con is, that that sort of quiet in the corner wow moment, the, the chance of having an impromptu wow moment is harder in some parts of DEF CON because it's so frenetic and so much energy. The villages are still wonderful, but DEF CON is huge that you just want to see it all and it's, it's hard to see it all. So I would say, definitely say people should start local if they can. There's a event called Security B-Sides, which in and of itself, it started as a hack, right? It was the idea that there was a very expensive corporate conference in one city charging thousands of dollars. And B-Sides said, well, we're just going to have a, a secondary conference running at the same time, sometimes with the same speakers, until the big corporate event caught on and said they actually put it in their contract. If you speak for us, you cannot speak at B-Sides. Uh, but they, 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 this B-Sides model started springing up around other large corporate events. So RSA in San Francisco, there's a B-Sides during RSA. There's a, still a B-Sides in Vegas. And it got caught on so – became so popular that now there are plenty of B-Sides, security B-Sides events in cities that have no A-side, as it were. There's, they don't have to be paired with another larger extant corporate conference. So look so, for a, a B-Sides near you? Look for a B-Sides near you if you don't have one. Look for a hacker meetup near you of any kind. There are DEF CON groups. There are other small, um, you know, hacker spaces and maker spaces. And then just, you know, pinch your pennies, save up, do the thing that we all did when we were years ago. When you, you put six people in a hotel room, maybe meant for three, and get to any, any you know, mid-sized hacker con. If you are new, look for the conversations that seem interesting and just sit down. Just introduce yourself and there's there's a wonderful woman I met at an event in South Dakota. Of all places, South Dakota has an amazing hacker conference. Probably my my new favorite new event to introduce people to. I say go to Wild West Hackenfest. And this woman Bronwyn showed up. I met her on the plane actually, because she was you know she's very shy right. But she said, hey you 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 look like you might be going to this thing that I'm going to. You kind of look. Right, don't take this the wrong way. Are you going to the hacker con? I said, yeah. And so she had a bag of like little goodies, little like kind of snacky treat type things from foreign cities. And she was just giving them out to anybody just as an icebreaker. And I'm still in touch with her. A lot of people are. And, it, you know, so if you're new, have any little trinkety icebreaker. I don't care if you're into card tricks or if you have cookies that you baked that are careful with traveling in between states these days because our laws are changing, right? But if you have really special cookies, <laughs> uh, you know, do anything to, to say – and then you know, don't pretend that you're something you're not. Say, I'm so new here, but what was that thing you were just talking about? What was that payphone thing? What's a payphone? You know, <laughs> sit right, down with right, them. Right. And if you're, if you're a longtime attendee, if you're part of this community, I've always loved the idea of the, the missing person or the open person slot in a group conversation. So if you're standing, the natural human instinct is to stand, you know, in a circle. Uh, try doing your best to always make sure there's at least one kind of open space in that circle where a, a passerby might just stick their head in and, and join. And if we keep doing that, especially at the smaller conferences, 
everyone's going to keep growing them and there'll be bigger conferences to come and people will feel very comfortable at DEFCON even if they've never been there before. I hope I hope that you did. That's beautiful. And I did. I love that. Thank you so, so much. It's been a great conversation. Terrific. If people want to follow you in your work or watch your videos, including the amazing video you made of developing a hacker bookmark for <laughs> my book, Breaking and Entering, that can actually be used to open locked doors, what's what's the kind of best way to find you online? I'm on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash deviantoloff. If you remember, it's spelled not like it sounds. And youtube.com slash deviantoloff. Uh, I try to just... I just want to share fun things and learn from others whenever I can and yell about the politics of the world when I'm angry and celebrate the joyful things in the world when people make me happy. Thank you again to Deviant Olaf. That's D-E-V-I-A-N-T-O-L-L-A-M. Thank you to Furniture for our theme music and thank you for listening. Please rate, review, and share this podcast with friends. And please join me again when I speak with Karen Spranger about digital hostage negotiations, the qualities to look for in hiring a hacker, and a typical day in a hacker office. That's next time on The Hacker Next